beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Once again, thank you for listening. Really appreciate wherever you're listening from across the United States, across Canada, all around the world. And it just means a lot to us. And I'm sure it means a lot to our guests. So today we have on Sherry Cormier, and she is a licensed psychologist and a professor emerita in the Department of Counseling, Rehabilitation Counseling, and Counseling Psychology at West Virginia University. She is a certified bereavement trauma specialist, uh, the author of two textbooks, and the producer of over 100 training videos for Cengage Learning. Her new book, Sweet Sorrow, Finding Enduring Wholeness After Loss and Grief, was written by her in the decade following the loss of her husband, father, mother, dog, and only sibling. Even though she is a trauma specialist, happiness and finding joy in her life when times get hard is her specialty. Sherry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be here and talking with you and all of your listeners. So let's uh, let's get started and and how did you get into psychology to begin with? I think that's for me because that's that's my passion, and and I have my own journey to to there. I actually wanted to be a math teacher to begin with, but then, you know, as things happen, you take an elective and then you love it. So was that the same for you, or did you know in the beginning you wanted to do counseling? You know, I that's a great question, and it's a partly it's a great question because it's one. I haven't thought about for a while because I've been doing this all my life. You know, some people do something. In fact, it's more and more common for people to do something in a career or an occupation and then have several changes in that. That's fairly common. I've actually been working in the psychology field since my early 20s. And I think I just instinctively... I've always been somebody that loves to help people and people I've always instinctively wanted to listen to people and people have from the time I was fairly young, people would tell me things, would tell me secrets or would tell me confidential information and say, oh, I have something I want to tell you. Please don't share this. So I got used to carrying a secret, you know, carrying uh, private information around, knowing that this was something they had entrusted with me and this was not to be shared. So I think it was a combination of all that. And by the time I was a senior in college, I was very active in student affairs and I became really so impacted by the student affairs staff at my university and the way that they were working with all of us undergrad students. And I just knew that was the, you know, that I just wanted to follow in their footsteps. So I have to say, I guess it was, I had these amazing mentors. Yeah, that's interesting. It's amazing how people can shift their journey and our focus on what we want to do in life. And I'm guessing, you know, you're, you are that person for other students. So have you got feedback from your students saying, like, you really changed my life? You know, oh, that's a, I want to be humble and say, well, <laughs> no. The fact of the matter is, I think my students, I feel I'm I'm very lucky because I'm doing different things now. I'm not actively teaching. I'm speaking and I'm doing consultation and I'm doing these training films and I'm writing and doing a lot of grief mentoring. But the fact of the matter is I am extremely connected still to all of my former students. And I want to say it's a two-way street. I think the answer is yes. I would say they have felt uh, impacted by me. And what I want to say is I'm also have been impacted and continue to be impacted by them. They're doing amazing things in the world. I mean, every time I hear from one of my former students and there, many of them were now friends. And if, if we're not in the same geographical area, of course, at least we're social media friends. And I'm so, my heart is so full all the time by reading and listening and watching and seeing all the ways that they are 
really putting their light out in the world and really, you know, making their own small but important changes with the people or the populations that they are working with. So it's certainly been a two-way street. Yeah, I, I can I can I can see that. And sometimes, you know, there are those jobs and, and careers that you might not get some direct feedback or uh you know, direct thanks from, but um, you know, when you see growth and if you're you know, if you're a teacher, if you're a leader of some sort and you see the people that you're working with and you can see their growth and development, I think that that's one aspect where you can look back and say, Okay, you know, I did a good job there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just like in raising children, you hope that you have some lasting legacy. <laughs> you hope. Positive <laughs> legacy. You, wonder, you hope you have some lasting legacy on people that, you know, you work with. I, I'm of the belief that no matter where we are in our little spot in the world, that we are all, it's possible for all of us to make a positive impact on the world in which we live. You know, even if it's, even if you think it's a small impact, you never know, for example, someone may be struggling with something and you, you walk by, you don't even know them and you say, you know, oh, you look great today or you say something kind or inquire about their well-being and that may carry that person for the rest of the week. So I believe that we all have the capacity to have a huge transforming impact on the lives of others, regardless of what our station in life is or, or our occupation or, uh, you know, what we do. We, we have that capacity. And I think the more light and joy we bring to others the the more we get back ourselves at least that's been my experience yeah well said and and yeah you're absolutely right it's one of those things that all and the proof is and all you got to look is in your own life and say okay well you know maybe there was a positive statement that changed something for me or maybe there's a negative one you know look back and say how powerful words are how powerful interactions are and, and small ones turn into big ones, you know, and it could be with your friend circle or, you know, your students or whoever's around you. Uh, and it doesn't, and like you said, it doesn't matter all careers, you know, all people have that impact. And so if you go through life and if, if you can keep that in your mind, then, you know, your interactions change, whereas they're maybe more important or throughout your day. And, you know, if you're going to grab coffee and having a, a small positive word with, you know, whoever's serving you or whatever it is, you're right. That can truly impact someone's life. And and it's the same way, uh, you know, just to turn it back around, back to the podcast, it's, it's like dreams, you know, uh, a dream can have that type of positive impact and change someone's life, uh, which is kind of what we're trying to uh, show. It's so true. That is so true. You know, I, I'm sure you know, if um from my book, Sweet Sorrow, I have an entire chapter in this book on the visitation dreams that I had from my late husband, Jay, who's been gone now 11 years. And in fact, you'll love this. <laughs> I woke up at seven o'clock this morning, Eastern time, in the middle of a visitation dream with Jay. And I hadn't had one for a while. And I'm thinking, he knows I'm going to be on a podcast today that has to do with grief dreams. <laughs> so <laughs> how timely is this? <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so I wake up I wake up with this dream about him. We're at, we're together in the dream and we are taking a walk. And I'm just of course I'm just you know overflowing with with joy and with happiness because anytime he comes to visit me and especially more recently when it's, it hasn't been as frequently, it's so wonderful to be in his magical presence again. So I'm just walking along, you know, my level of elation is high and 
I'm just, you know, and I'm saying all these little sweet nothings to him in the dream, like, you know, honey, oh, God, it's so great to be with you. And honey, you know, oh, this feels so great. And you look wonderful. And wow, what a handsome dude you are. And he turns to me and he says, you know, he says, I haven't heard you say these things for a while. And I, and I looked at him and I said, well, that's because we haven't had a visit in a little while. And we, and we haven't. I think the, the last big visitation dream I had from him was late in the fall. So um, I got a very powerful dream from him um, last fall about four messages and uh so this was this was like a, a a dream of reuniting of reunification but as you know i have a whole chapter called manifestations of the soul in my sweet sorrow book and i've had all these dreams and when you talk about dreams helping people cope with loss and and deal with heartbreak and grief one of the the very small, well, very short dreams. I would wouldn't say call it small because I think it's very impactful. But a short dream I had two years after Jay transitioned, and I have talked about this dream so much in podcasting and mentoring I'm doing with with grief survivors. But. Jay came to me two years after he had transitioned, and I just looked at him, and I said, honey, what's it like to die? And I, he just said very simply, just wait. It's genius. And that totally took my fear, my own fear of dying away, because when I hear someone that's already crossed over transition say it's genius just wait you know plus all these reports I've been reading uh, more recently of NDEs or near-death experiences what people have experienced and then they come back to life and what they report to us you know to me one of the biggest lessons I've learned in my own grief journey and certainly through these dreams is that death is not, you know, death of someone that we love so deeply. And I have, you know, lost, as you mentioned at the top of the, the, the broadcast, I've lost my entire family of origin and my rescue dog and my, my beloved husband in the last decade. But to me, death is not a disappearance. It's a transition. And that's, that has been huge for me. And it's really transformed the way that I think about uh, grief and loss and the way that people heal during their grief journey and even the whole process of what it means to die. What powerful dreams you had. And the one you first shared about the uh, being able to tell him like you loved him and he's how cute he is or handsome waking up this morning <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm I still think... in the glow of that dream you can <laughs> yeah i wish you could see me because because i'm just yeah i'm still experiencing the glow yes because isn't it it's just beautiful and i hear this sometimes sometimes the deceased will say these loving kind words sometimes it's us the dreamer that says these really yeah. beautiful words. i think there's something to that about you know what it does to us to be able to say like beautiful things to other people. I think that's yeah. what you're saying in the beginning about being a great teacher is yeah. to say like loving stuff to other people can transform you, not only them. And, you know, I'm so glad you tied it back to that because I just got done this morning. I've, I haven't been home too long. On Friday mornings, I facilitate a bereavement support group at one of our local senior centers. And, you know, some of the things that we've talked about are how when you are around someone all the time, whether it's a partner, your children, your grandchildren, your close friends, it's so easy to get used to the fact that, they're, that you see them all the time. 
and we almost stop saying kind or loving things to them. In fact, I really do believe that it's easier to be negative or grumpy or um, a little irritable sometimes with people we love the most or that we're around the most. And I think what was so wonderful about this dream this morning was it was such a good illustration that we do want to remember that even people we're connected to all the time, whether they're our work colleagues, our students in our classroom, our friends, our family, that just because we are around them all the time doesn't mean we should stop saying loving, affirming things. That's how we sustain and grow healthy relationships. Yeah, absolutely. I really felt that. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that definitely in my, you know, personal relationships, I haven't always, I, I've done that where I've neglected to kind of say the kind things that should be said and, and to kind of pepper them into your daily interactions. It also made me think of something when I was working, I was a supervisor for some employees and you know, there was a couple of really, you know, really good guys who came up to me and, and they they told me, they're like, you know, if you really want to do well here, you know, number one is say hi to everyone in the morning. You know, sometimes like as managers or bosses or whatever, you know, you want to get to work and get started. So mm -hmm. like sometimes you're the first thing you ever say to someone instead of like, hey, how's it going? How are you doing? It's just like, oh, uh. John, can you move this over there? Because uh, we got to get this conference going, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 a simple thing. But it's like another thing I, I, that made me think about is as a supervisor, I have, uh, let's say, 30 employees and they're all watching me. And so I might say to myself, well, I don't have time to say to say hi to everyone. I don't have time to go out and do that. Well, from their perspective, there's only one. So like. If, if I don't go and do that, then that's a, that's like a loss. That's a negative. They don't, they're like, oh, well, my boss, my supervisor didn't say hi to me. He didn't say a kind word. He didn't say thank you in a long time. And that's where things, mm -hmm. simple things like, hey, thank you. Thanks for doing this. Mm -hmm. That's another thing they so teach important. us. Yeah. And when you thank someone, give them the reason why. Don't just say, hey, mm -hmm. thanks. Be like, hey, thanks mm -hmm. for doing this because this did this for me. Um, so those simple little interactions and not only with, you know, with your loved ones, but also colleagues and really everybody around you being aware of those little moments can, can change that person's perspective of you and just change your perspective as a whole. So I really, I, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me, Sherry. And I think, you know, Joshua, that's how we really thrive in, in the, in the workplace, in the instance you were mentioning, or it could even be in a family situation, uh, when we stop to acknowledge someone with a greeting or with a thank you or with an appreciative word or an, an inquiry, we stop to acknowledgement. Acknowledgement is huge. And yet we all, it isn't just you. I'm the same way. I get too task-oriented sometimes. And the beauty of this dream this morning was it reminded me just what you're saying, that we're all busy and we all have many things to accomplish and we're all feeling time challenged. And yet, and yet take time to say something loving, something affirming, something acknowledging to people we see whether they're strangers or people we work with or people in our family or our loved ones take time. Yeah. And it'll help like, you know, just reaffirm positive practices. Like, I, mm -hmm. you know, I imagine I don't have kids, but I imagine, you know, if you have a kid and maybe they have, they're having a hard time, you know, cleaning their room or making their bed. And, you know, even though as a parent, you're like, well, I expect this from this person. They should be doing this. Well, you know, Maybe once in a while say, hey, bed looks amazing, looks clean, looks looks great, good job, mm -hmm. you know, and that's just reaffirming the positive practice. Yeah. Um, sometimes we get caught up, we forget. So the person will continue doing their job, and then when they slip up, then we jump on the negative. Yeah. Well, that, 
that's that's obviously just cementing the negative more rather than if they keep doing their job throw in that positive and then that just you know reaffirms that and sean i know you don't have a kid but you do have a dog and i know you say (laughs) loving sweet nothing to him throughout the day so i think there's and i don't know why i think pet owners or or with pets we maybe are sometimes more comfortable saying nice things to a, a pet rather than a human yeah, well, I mean, I it, I do treat him a lot like uh, a human, <laughs> like a, my son, and and I realize like that's important for them too because talking to them, you know, giving positive uh, things, positive affirmations, just just you know, pushing them in that direction, it keeps them on, on the positive. And and you know, when with dog behavior, you know, that's another thing is where it's not just about correcting negative behavior; it's about reinforcing the positive. So like if he, and I can forget sometimes that like, even though he's, he knows this, let's say, uh, you know, whatever I, I'm getting him to sit, even though he knows it, I could, I still need to put the positive reaff- you know, affirmation in there. It's a good job because, you know, it just cements it more and then he wants to do it more. So yeah, it's, I guess it would be similar. <laughs> what do you think, Sherry? Oh, well, being a huge dog lover, (laughs) I think, I think we talk to pets more and I wonder if it's because we don't censor ourselves as much. We're not as worried about speaking to our pets because we know they won't directly talk back or respond. I mean, they do respond, of course, they're very responsive, they'll you know, kind of slink away if we've said something negative or come give us lots of kisses if we've said something positive. Um, I think pets are a really important way of dealing with heartbreak and loss, too. You know, sometimes it takes getting a pet for people who are maybe finding, finding themselves alone and in the middle of a challenging or disappointing or heartbreaking situation and there's something about the pet I um I rescued a golden retriever she since died but her name was Abby and I rescued her a couple months after uh, my husband Jay transitioned and she I t- found out had her own loss situation she had been uh, a, a pet of divorce and she'd been living with another dog named Winston, a chocolate lab. And when the couple divorced, they gave Winston away to one home and they gave Abby away. So she not only lost her owner, she lost her sibling after that family divorce. So she and I would have these frequent, I really believe they were soul to soul conversations. She had this beautiful brown velvet bed in the living room, and she, it was very padded and luxurious, and she would, you know, curl up her body on it, and then I would get, lay down on the, on my stomach, almost like in yoga sphinx pose and in front of her, and we would meet eye to eye, and I would just say, you know, because she seemed so happy most of the time, I would say, Abby, how are you dealing with losing your family and you know do you do you think I'm going to ever be able to deal with with losing Jay and she would just look at me with these big brown soulful eyes and then I'd get a kiss and we would continue to have these conversations and I'm absolutely convinced we really helped each other heal in a very powerful way Oh, that's amazing. That's beautiful. And, and, you know, I love that you do share these things with your dog and, and it, it's, you know, it, it's one of those things where the less limiting you are in your relationship, I think the more fruitful you'll get, like the more open you are with your dog and the possibilities and willing to share yourself, willing to kind of look into the dog and look beyond what you've been told. I think that can lead to some, you know, magical moments in a relationship. You know, and one, it does. And one thing I really think I want want to add, because there may be listeners who are in this situation, pet, losing a pet is so hard. We almost talk about losing a pet or even losing 
a close friend as disenfranchised grief, meaning that there's this this sort of implication, if you will, that, well, losing a pet or losing a friend maybe wouldn't be as challenging or as difficult as losing a child or a spouse or a family member. And what really I want to emphasize is that there's really no sort of one universal rule about about losing about loss, about losing pets or friends or families, that everybody has a different reaction to loss. And I've worked with people that really have more challenges in healing from grief when they've lost their pet than perhaps when they've lost a family member or maybe when they've lost their their lifelong friend. So I think we have to be really careful about it's so easy to get judgy, isn't it? Like, well, how can that person not come to work and be so despondent just because their cat died or their bird died or because their best friend died? And yet for that one person, that singular loss may be felt at a very deep level and their heartbreak around that and their sorrow around that may be extremely deep and extremely powerful. And so we really aren't in a position looking from the outside in to really know what the level of heartbreak is over losing their pet or or maybe losing a very close friend. It, It might be very, very, very deep. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, I think a lot of that, you know, some of that could be chalked up to is the way we live in our communities now and maybe a little more isolated than was in the past. You know, people are, I think loneliness is a real thing, real problem sometimes. Huge. Right? And uh, you have a lot of people who have an animal or a pet with them and that becomes you know, the brightest part of their day that becomes the voice that they get to or the animal they get to go home to and it's positive and it loves them when society maybe doesn't or they feel it doesn't. And that that's interesting. I wonder if you, like, you must see a lot of loneliness when you do your talks or engagements. Tons of loneliness. Tons of loneliness. I'm so glad you brought it up. I think it's a topic we need to be focusing on so much more because there's more and more research coming out now. It's in fact, loneliness has been identified by the CDC as one of the top five public health issues in the United States, but it's not just in this country. You know, in many countries around the world, loneliness is a global epidemic and it has so many health consequences, not just for emotional or mental health, also for physical health. You know, people who are lonely not only are are more sorrowful and feel more sad, they are also likely to die earlier. There's an increased risk, of course, of heart issues because the heart is an organ that is so deeply connected to love and connection. And so loneliness is really, and, you know, really felt in the heart and the lungs, uh, also grief and sorrow. So it's a huge issue. It's, I think one of the things that I've been struck by is as people age that they, you know, there's more and more of a social network they lose. I just had coffee with someone recently who said, you know, it seems so hard to make new friends after you're, you know, when you're in your 60s and beyond. And yet that's the very time when it's so important to keep making new friends and develop social networks because you do lose more friends as you get older. You do lose lose more family members as you get older. Certainly you'll probably lose parents and maybe siblings. So, I think we have to look for ways to help people develop new social connections and also find a sense of belonging and this sense of community that you mentioned. 
we have to we have to really be more proactive about this, I think, than we've been. Yeah, I I totally agree with you on that one. Um, my parents uh, recently retired, and I was concerned for them because you know work keeps you busy. You have mm-hmm. your friends at work, and if you once you retire, though, like that's a part of your kind of you know, your social network that's kind of mm-hmm. removed now. And, you know, whether you're retired and then people as people age, you know, people die around them, maybe a spouse, maybe you know, siblings and whatnot. So in le- if they haven't learned to build um, activities into their life with people or social things, it can be a very tough, tough road. And um, my heart goes out to a lot of people who are seniors at that age. You know, I, I, I was volunteering very briefly and you know, I was walking through a nursing home and, you know, people, they're just alone. And, you know, you ask, I was asking the person I was volunteering with, you know, who comes visits them? Like, oh, my son comes once a week. And, you know, I, I know just by looking at their eyes, like, that's it, you know. And sometimes no one comes. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. no one comes. And I think you hit on such a good point. You know, we get so used, we get so accustomed and so used to having built-in social networks through a, a place of employment. But when we leave that or we retire, we, you know, more and more people are now working from home virtually. Mm. And so you don't go into an actual physical location where you see other people. So I think we haven't learned in some ways the skills for developing social networks. Um, This same person who said to me, well, you know, gosh, it's really hard to make new friends when you get get into your 60s. You know, he was also saying, gosh, I just don't know where, where to look. I don't know how to do it. And that, that's a skill set we really need to be focusing on because you know, I I think it involves things like joining meetup groups, finding book clubs. I, every community I know, usually the library has a, a book club. Um, sometimes a, a, a place like a gym or a yoga studio or a meditation studio or a place of some kind of worship, um, a senior center. Uh, a youth center, uh, these can all be places, you know, because a lot of people are saying, well, you know, I don't want to just go to bars and meet people, which I totally understand that. But there, you know, there are many more places we may not think about them, but there are places we can go to to get connected to other other people. And I think uh, AARP has, has a virtual site you can connect to. I think Oprah has a site you can connect to. Certainly social media, you know, is great. Although again, face-to-face contact is so important. And I I really want to stress this for, for loss. We know that one of the most important ingredients in whether or not somebody can heal from loss or not has to do with their ties, connections to other people. If you are a griever, you've lost people and you're grieving, and you don't have ties to other people and you're lonely, that is going to make your healing journey so much more difficult and so much more protracted. And it's not as though we need a huge network What we do know, though, Joshua, from research is that we all need at least a couple of people that we feel we can confide in. And if I would say if you're listening to this right now and you don't have that, that's a good time to think about joining a grief support group, finding a qualified grief helper or counselor, and starting with them. So that, you know, there's at least one or two or three people that you feel you can tell them hard things and they will listen and you can find support. And that 
that kind of connection is really critical to healing from loss. Yeah, no, it's well said. I'm curious about your own journey. Since you lost five people in such a short mm-hmm. time, did you have moments of loneliness? Like, were there moments that oh you needed God. to go and find a support group? Like, could you talk a little about your journey? Sure, I'd love to. Um, I've written a lot about about my journey in Sweet Sorrow, but I can certainly even update that. I was incredibly lonely uh, for several years, mostly more so after my husband died, because, you know, the thing about being partnered, this is the biggest thing. I live alone. I'm single. I'm not in a relationship. So I've been living alone now and being single for 11 years, over a decade. I was, you know, married to my husband for, we were together almost 20 years. So the biggest difference to me about being partnered and single is that when you're partnered, you get so many of those social connection needs met through your partner. All of a sudden, when you're single and you live alone, and particularly, you know, you maybe don't have roommates, like, you know, you could be single in college, of course, but have roommates. But when you're older and you live alone and you don't have roommates, for example, you're not getting those social connection needs met through a partner. So I think I was lonely because Jay and I supplied each other with so much emotional connection. And we were very, very connected to each other. I mean, I, my daughters say to me, you know, you guys had a really unusual marriage. Um, it was a second marriage for both of us. And I think it, we were probably very more, more connected maybe than many, many other mar- married couples. But I think it was very peculiar after he died because, you know, maybe 90% of my emotional connection needs were met through my life with him, coupled by the fact that at that point in time, I was in private practice as a psychologist. I lived in a different state then. I had a private, active private practice in psychology. And, you know, you you don't have friendships with clients either. I lived in a small town, so my friendships tended to be with other psychologists, which was actually great because I got wonderful advice. One of the things one of the things that made me feel the loneliest and I've heard so many other people say this was uh at dinner time. I was unaccustomed to eating dinner alone. Now now I eat dinner alone all the time and I don't think a thing about it, but for several years I would bawl my eyes out because it was so painful and so lonely to eat dinner alone. And it it really to be truthful about it, it sort of made me angry because I knew a lot of people, many of my friends were still partnered because I lost him at a little bit of a younger age. So I still had many partnered couples friends. And I kept wondering why they never invited me over to eat dinner with them. Um, I think we just don't think about it. I think when one of our friends loses somebody and we haven't been in that position or situation yet. We just don't think about the times that that they might be vulnerable to loneliness. I think dinner is one of them. I think Sundays are a very lonely time for people who've lost someone. So I think there are times when people feel lonely. I don't feel lonely now. And it's, Peculiar, I I suppose, in that I do live alone now, and my dog died, and I have not gotten another dog because I travel so much. Um, my I moved out. I moved to a different state, so I live in a different place now, and I had to completely start over, and that was about seven years ago. Um, so I went through the business of being lonely the first year I moved. Uh, to where I currently live because other than I had a younger daughter who used to live here but doesn't anymore, other than her, I didn't really know anybody. So I went through that business of starting over, and I think that was so good for me 
because that's what really helped sensitize me to I can't sit in my house and wait for people to come to me, although I have to say my neighbors were terrific about coming over when I moved in and connecting with me. But you you can't sit and wait for people to meet you. You have to go, you know, I think you have to go out. We have to go out and take the responsibility to meet people and join. I joined a lot of meetup groups. I went to yoga classes, joined a gym, went to a church, met people there, uh, joined a meditation group, joined a couple book clubs. What happened was I got too busy and I almost got too socially connected. And then I had to scale back. So I don't feel lonely now, but I felt very lonely after I you know, my husband transitioned, particularly at dinner time and on weekends. So if you know somebody in your life who's recently lost their partner or or a member of their family, reach out to them and ask them directly, what are the hardest times for you? How could I be of most help to you during these really hard, challenging times? Well, that's a really great advice. And I think, too, it showcases that loneliness isn't fixed overnight. Like you had to really go through this. And then with some changes, things that happened, it's finding that balance again, finding your new normal. Um, finding without, your new normal. Yeah. Without Jay being physically present there. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's great that you're speaking about this. So why did you decide to write the book? Because it was about, it wasn't right away. Some people, like that we interview here, it's they have a loss. It's about a year after, and they want to write a book to sort of almost make meaning out of their loss and really process mm-hmm. it a bit more. You waited mm-hmm. a fairly long bit of time, about 10 years or something? Intentionally. I did. I did that very intentionally because I think most of the books that are written, my, my book is sort of part memoir. It's also part... Um, part self-help, you know, in terms of tools for working through loss and grief and so forth. But I do think most of these books, these sort of memoir-type books, are written almost in a knee-jerk way, a sort of reactive way, very soon after a loss. I have found such books to sometimes make me feel more pessimistic because they are, they represent a certain, they have a certain dark quality about them. I, I wanted to show how grief oscillates over time, just like loneliness, that these emotional states like loneliness and sadness and sorrow and grief, they're not fixed entities. They're not, uh, you know, we don't plateau usually. They, they may, you know, come in and recede. I think of, you know, like the tide of an ocean, you can get swallowed up by a big wave of grief. And then at other times it recedes. And like at low tide, you don't feel much of it. So I wanted to show how these things really do transform over time, because I think they do. And I wanted to write a book that was more light than dark, that really really gave people light, that really provided hope and inspiration to people, and that really a book of encouragement, courage really means, that word means to take heart, a book that would really help people know they could build resilience, they could go on and find or uncover or create, I don't think we find meaning, but we create meaning from what has happened to them and that they can create a life of value and a life of meaning. So that's really why I waited to write the book. And I wrote the book because I'm a helper. So it was like a natural way to try to help more people than just one person sitting in front of you. No, yeah, that's good. It's for your personality. So that hasn't changed. (laughs) (laughs) That, that's right. This has been a life, right. Helping people has been a lifelong journey for me. 
I'm curious, why uh, why Sweet Sorrow? I think it's an interesting title. I've had so many people ask me that. I'm really glad you asked well, me. Uh, well, if you did, and uh, we'll go on to the next question. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you asked me because my yoga teacher here put it the best way. You know, there's the yin and the yang. And there's, and that's true of sorrow. I mean, there's sorrow and there, and sorrow when you first go through a loss. And, you know, when we talk about loss, we're really not just talking about losing people. A divorce is a loss. You can have a terrible job loss. You can lose a house to a wildfire or foreclosure. So, but when you go through any kind of loss, at first, you know, there's, you feel sort of more of the sorrow, you know, like the, maybe we would call that, you know, the, the yin of it. And then over time, again, over time, that sorrow does not stay constant and your experience of the loss changes and you remember the job or the house or the person differently. And the sorrow takes on a quality of yang in the yoga teacher's words or quality in my words of sweetness. There's sweet memories, just like that dream I had this morning, such a sweet dream with my husband. And I felt so much love and so much joy and I did not feel sorrowful. And you know, 50% of, of us who lose people do get visitation dreams. And for the most part, they are dreams that are very affirming, and they make most grief survivors feel better. Yeah, it's interesting. And I would say it's probably higher than that, than the 50%, just with the uh, the studies I've run. From your uh, research, you found yeah. it higher, right? What, what yeah. did you find? So in the, the three samples I did, so one was after spousal loss, it was 86%. After wow. pet loss, after pet loss, seventy five percent in the first six months, and then prenatal loss, it was sixty percent. So, um, and then so a lot of people are having these dreams, but you're talking about also visitation dreams, and that's I don't know. It's hard to determine if a dream is a visitation or not. It's really just based on people's perspectives of the dream, and I think that's mm -hmm. fine because there's it doesn't matter. Like even like um, if someone's spiritual or not isn't determining if people have these dreams or not. So everyone's having these dreams, whether you're, mm -hmm. you're religious or not. So there's something beautiful about just the comforting feelings of having these dreams. And many people who find comfort also in our spiritual will find them as visitations too. So I think it's very interesting about just the um, amount, the large amount of people that are having these experiences, you know, all the time. But, you know, some sometimes it's just once and that's it. But it seems like with you, you're having these a couple times throughout your life, which is, I think, a beautiful statement to you to feel that love because that's what people long for. Yes. And I think what one of the messages that I keep getting from uh, my husband, Jay, is that the love still endures. See, we may lose, we, the person loses their physical body. We may lose our physical relationship with them. We still have a connection with the person we've lost through love. Love is eternal. And, you know, to me, love is the strongest energy, most energy state in the world, the most p powerful, the most healing energy state in the world. I keep thinking of the words of um, a pioneer in, in the United States, and many people around the world will know of Martin Luther King Jr. We have a memorial to him very close to where I live in Washington, D.C., a national memorial. And Hate only begets hate. You know, hate does, you know, the only thing that really heals is love. Hate brings on more hate. Love, love brings love. So love still exists, even though the physical body of that person is no longer with us on a day-to-day -day basis through the transition. Yeah, I think that's the uh, the important note there is that love is still within you, despite feeling so much sorrow. Mm -hmm. That sweetness is that that love still exists, like within. Yeah. You, you have to find it again and be able to yeah. cultivate that, because you know, like really, all people can see sometimes is what they feel, 
And that's just the sorrow in the beginning, especially as you're saying. And it sounds like in your research, and I'm so glad you're doing this research, I think we need, we need to talk about grief dreams so much more than we do. And we certainly need a lot more empirical studies. Uh, haven't you found that too? I'm, I think in some of your work you've done is that one of the valuable parts about getting these dreams is it reinforces that loving connection that you've had. Yeah, there's actually, it's one of the studies I looked at is like the function of these dreams. And some of them are traumatic, but there's other ones that it facilitates a continuing bond and other ones that it mm -hmm. actually provides almost a respite. It allows you to almost elevate your mood in the sense of providing that comfort. And I think that's like that love quality. A lot of people have said it too. And those are almost the most transformative dreams in people's lives where they can have this dream and the love in there is so profound. It's almost as if they've never experienced it in waking life. It's almost, it's just like, mm -hmm. it's a new state. And within that state, mm -hmm. I think a lot of growth and change can occur mm -hmm. within the body or the mind. I don't know, but like something happens because people who are wanting to maybe die by suicide, they have this dream all of a sudden they're okay. Like they have hope they have, they're, they're resilient. And it's just like one dream can just change people like that. It's fascinating to me. It's, you know, if talk about miracles, that'd be a miracle. Just, just the way people do change like that. It's like nothing I've ever seen before personally mm -hmm. in life. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that love is the, love is the way that we do change. Love is the, love provides the energy for us to grow and to change. And so when you're getting that connection and that feeling through the dreams that really does provide the fuel if you want to think of it that way the you know like putting fuel in the gas tank that provides the fuel for you to really you know develop resilience and to really strengthen and really you know because move ahead I think the last thing that our loved ones want to see is for us to sit around spending all of our time being unhappy. You know, they know how short our time on earth really is. And so they're trying to do perhaps in these dreams what they can do to help us sort of let go of regrets and guilt and things like that so we can really open ourselves up to growth and possibilities and, and expansion and more love. Yeah, the love's the key. And I think what I like about it, too, is that when people have these these experiences within their dreams and they feel a, a connection or, or love and they wake up, I think it gives them hope that that love's achievable again. Because in my understanding of grief, like when it when your loved one does die, you almost feel this, there's this fear that you're never going to feel that love again. Like it, mm -hmm. it's gone. And so then yeah. you get this dream and you're like, wait a second, it's not gone. So it provides some more hope that if I can almost, if I can have this feeling while I'm asleep, I could, I could most likely have it when I'm awake again. Absolutely. So, so it gives, so yeah, it gives definitely that hope. So much hope and so much inspiration. Mm. So I'm curious, have you ever had a dream of someone else or is it has it only been Jay? My father died or transitioned three months before Jay. And so there have been a few dreams in which both Jay and my father have shown up in the dream together. I find that interesting because I've had, we have a really well-known uh, psychic medium where I live. She's been on 2020 and things like that. She's helped solve cases. I've seen her a few times. And most of the times I've seen her, both my father and Jay come in together into the room and give her messages. And they, they have often shown up together in my dreams. Or I'll be having a dream with my husband and then my dad will come in or something like that. Um, I have not had many dreams of my mother or my dog or my sister who died. Um, just a couple. But by and large, most of the dreams have been with, with my husband and then a, a, few, a few with my father. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating that they would sh- they the two of them not only show up in the dreams, but they show up in the mediums room mm-hmm. and come through and give me messages together. It's like they're, you know, it's like they've joined forces. <laughs> we really want to get through to her. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Hey, you never know, right? You never know. But yeah, that is a fascinating thing to to think about and to almost to realize that you do have even more support um, than just Jay. You have Jay and your father there. And I can't see Mm why, you know, Abby's not running around and, you know, and you have your mom, you know, doing some stuff too. And it's just, it's interesting what we, or who comes to us, let's say in in psychic sessions or medium sessions, but also who comes to us in dreams. And Mm -hmm. because that's all, I don't know, right? That's one of those things I don't really know. But you know, it is interesting for me to just think about on why them, not someone else. Yes. And, you know, I know I have people that tell me about, oh, my goodness, they have dreams of their ancestors come to them, their great grandparents, their great aunts and uncles. So I think there's a whole realm of possibilities for who can show up and and really be instructive as well as, you know, loving in a, in a dream. Many, I mean, we can go many generations back and people can come in dreams. Do you see that a lot in your private practice when you deal with grief? Is that one of the things that does come up? With, with going many generations back? No, just grief dreams in general. Like, is that a topic that does come up? Yes. What I see are two things. I see either people who have the grief dreams who are, pardon the phrase, dying to talk about them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or I see people who come in who have not had any dreams and are really upset by that. And I was glad to see, I think you mentioned on your website, I was so glad to see it, that just because you don't think you've had a dream from someone is not a reason to chastise yourself. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't mean anything less, you know, it's not, it doesn't mean anything less about you or the person you lost or your relationship. If you're not having dreams, I know many people that were very connected to someone they lost and they just don't have dreams. And it may, you know, it may be too that, not everyone remembers their dreams. So it's possible you can be having the dreams and you just wake up and don't remember them because I I keep a pad and a a pencil or pen on my nightstand and as soon as I wake up with a dream like this, a grief dream, I write it down immediately. And if I didn't, I don't know if I would remember it later. Yeah, that's the thing if, if you remember it. But a lot of people, if they do have a dream that's impactful, these dreams tend to be remembered. But yeah, that's why mm-hmm. I started the research and to sort of really answer that one question because I saw that a lot too. And basically, yeah, the, the one factor that in both studies was that dream recall was the most important factor. So people who remember dreams are remembering some of these dreams. So I always ask people if they say they haven't had one, I always ask, you know, how often do you remember dreams? And a lot of them will say not very often. And I said, mm-hmm. well, you know, so you're just connecting the dots for people because they long for it, but they don't realize they need to dream to almost have it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a, it's cool. You saw that in your, in your own practice. And then, you know, like I got to, I guess, validate that through the research. Empirically. I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm utterly fascinated by the research that you've done. It's mind blowing. <laughs> Ah, thank you. (laughs) So needed. So needed. All right. So just going to be wrapping up. We have our one last question that we always like to ask our guests. And that is, if you could have a dream tonight of someone who has died, what would that look like to you? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I sort of had a dream like that. (laughs) But I'll just say, I guess. An ideal dream I could have tonight would be where my family, meaning my mother, father, sister, only sibling sister, and Jay, my husband, and Abby, my dog, and Rusty, my dog, before that, were all together. 
you know, all in the same energy field. And I was with them and we were all feeling connected through the bond of love and, you know, just experiencing the sweetness of that and the, the, the joy of that. That would be my ideal dream. And where would you want it to take place? Do you want it here on Earth, in a house, or do you want to be in the afterlife? What do you, does, what do you want? It, <laughs> it really doesn't matter. I mean, I, because I feel like, the, you know, there's the Earth is this, this sort of the 3D dimension, but we have many dimensions beyond that. So it could, you know, it could take place really for me in any dimension. It would just be that we would all be energetically connected and be sharing that sweetness of the love that we feel among each other and the and the bonds that we've had throughout the time that they they were on earth and I still am on earth. All right, and one last question is do you want them to be a certain age like maybe all the same age like 30 or would you want them to be the age they are when they died um i would probably just want them to be the age they were when they transitioned the one thing that i will say is that when my father died for example he was uh, 90 and for several years before he died he had dementia when he's come through both in my dreams and in the medium room, he's been healed from dementia. And my husband died of stage four cancer. I had one dream with Jay in which he was still very Ill, Ill but other than that, in the dreams with Jay, he's been healed from cancer. So the age is really not important to me. I think it's great to have dreams in which your loved ones come back and you realize that they are they are really healed they're whole you know they are really whole physically emotionally spiritually to me that would be what would be most important oh that's beautiful yeah it's, it's amazing to see these dreams when animals or humans they're healthier again mm-hmm. um, even if they're, they're the enjoying. same age mm-hmm. yeah. and they're full of joy and they're sparking joy in us <laughs> That's amazing. It's amazing you get these dreams. And I'm glad we had a chance to talk about your life and things you've learned along the way and experiences you've had, because I feel like my day is a little bit better because of talking to you today. And and likewise, I've been really privileged to talk to you, Joshua and Sean, and all of your listeners. And I thank you for inviting me into your your space and into the studio and into your hearts. Yeah, likewise. And, and again, like, uh, it was a really, really great conversation. I'm glad we touched upon some really um, key things like, you know, just being having a, a love in your heart, having a positive word with someone um, talking about the loneliness. I think that was uh, that was a really cool thing to because again, like, and the tips you gave uh, about, you know, where how people can kind of get out there. And sometimes, you know, it's it just, you just got to get out there and i know it's it's tough um it's but, a level you know, daunting mm-hmm. it's very daunting yeah but you just have to almost think that like hey everybody who's doing that is also probably a little bit uh daunt, like scared a little bit too so yeah you know go out there join the clubs join you know legion or church or whatever it is that you know gets you out there um, and smiling i think i've rarely found someone who doesn't respond to a smile so I think if you get out there and you smile, that's such an instant way to make a connection. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And just, you know, you start start the practice of just, you know, looking at your life as, as a book and that you can change the narrative if, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we all have that power. And we uh, do. That can be tough after loss and grief. And like you said, you know, that tide, that big wave of sorrow comes at you. You don't think that it'll get smaller and it's, it's overwhelming. But, you know, there is there is a light at the end of the tunnel and uh, the ability of, for all of us to kind of change uh, our lives. Uh, mm-hmm. So thank you so much, Sherry. Could you shout out your handles or where people can find your book? Sure. Sure. The book is called Sweet Sorrow and it's available 
on all online book sellers like Amazon, Barnes and Noble. And I have a web page, www.sherry, S-H-E-R-R-Y, Cormier, C-O-R-M-I-E-R, author.com, where you can contact me. I'm also on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. There you go. Getting really social out there, Sherry. <laughs> I like it. I like That's it. That's true. Excellent. So uh, please uh, check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. Uh, we added a donation button and there are perks to those who donate. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group talking about social groups. You can join that and you can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. Uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. And as always, we like to end our podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. introduced myself you have introduced yourself this is a very good conversation